Dwayne Cheney. I'm the Morrisville campus pastor. Donnie is away. And uh, I'm excited to be with you this weekend. I have a confession to make. I have trust issues. Now, I, we, all, we could unpack all that at this point, but I'm going to kind of give you an example about where these trust issues come from. See, this past week was my wife's birthday. On Thursday, she turned 21 again. She is so talented at that. But we went out for breakfast for her birthday, and uh, we went to a, a little restaurant, and I ordered uh, my drinks, and I ordered a large milk and a small water. Standard order when you go get breakfast, right? So the waitress comes back, and this is what she brings me. Large milk, small water, which is, the visually, it's bad enough. Kind of, I was like, this is kind of weird. And then she says to me, sorry, this is the largest milk we have, and this is the smallest water we have. Now, I grew up middle of three boys. Sarcasm is like a second language for me. And so the 10 things that immediately popped in my head, I put away because I'm growing. And I said, so you have no larger cups for milk or no smaller cups for water? No. I think I have a solution for you, was all I could say as she walked away. My wife's dying laughing because she knows me. And if that were the end of it, that would be, you know, that's funny and we keep moving on. But then she brings the rest of my family's order. My wife had ordered a small orange juice and then my kids got chocolate milk in a kid's cup and this is what we had. Okay, now it's just nonsensical. My children's kid's cup is larger than, okay, we're not gonna get into this. So you see, I have trust issues. You tell me one thing and yet it seems that there might be some other truth out there. And if that doesn't resonate with you, I have one that no matter where you are, no matter what campus you are at, if you're listening online, this, I know you get this one. So I want you to picture right out of the oven, you get some hot chocolate chip cookies and they come out and you got your milk and you're ready and you bite into them and they're not chocolate chip, they're raisin. <laughs> raisin cookies that look like chocolate chip cookies are why we have trust issues. And I know some of you are like, raisin cookies are just as good as chocolate chip cookies. You're wrong, no they're not. But we love you where you are, that's our mission here. And that's not even what we're talking about this weekend, is cookies. We're talking about that we have trust issues. We all do. Matter of fact, turn to your neighbor and say, I have trust issues. And the good news is, the good news is that this weekend, we're gonna actually unpack a little bit. That's like a group therapy session across all of our campuses. We're gonna get to maybe solving, resolving some of those trust issues. And we're gonna do so by framing it through the context of a question. I want you to ask yourself this question. When it comes to my future, Am I the most trustworthy person I know? Simple question, right? When it comes to your future, are you the most trustworthy person that you know? Now you might go, yeah, this is easy. I can get out of here. Let's go, to go eat. No. What if the answer is no? Well, we're going to talk through that and to give you a little context for those of you who are, this is your first time, you weren't here last weekend, maybe we're in a six week series we're calling hashtag winning, where we're looking at how we can have the winning life. And Donnie talked about last week about how the difference between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. And he talked about that there are these five marks that we believe at hope mark a person who is a follower of Jesus. And so this weekend, we're going to talk about that first mark living obediently. Now, 
to give you some context, just so you understand where we, when I, what I mean when I say living obediently, I don't mean following the law. We assume that most of you do that. Now, looking out in the crowd, that's a bad assumption on our part, but that's okay. It's not following the big 10 in the Bible, the 10 commandments. It's not that. When we say living obediently, understand that we put it in a very specific context. We say living obediently means that we know Jesus, we know his word, and we remain in him. And so we're going to unpack this connection between trusting and living obediently this weekend. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be parked in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 10 specifically. So if you have a Bible or if you have the free uh, Bible app, you can follow along. If you don't have either one of those things, maybe you, you don't have a Bible or you have like a Blackberry or something, uh, we'll have the verses on the side screens and like an eight track for those of you that have the Blackberry. We'll get that for you uh, on your way out. But we're in uh, chapter 10 of the book of John. It's the fourth gospel. It's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And to catch you up to where we are leading into John 10, in John 9, Jesus has just healed a blind man, a man who was blind his whole life, and he has healed him. It's kind of what Jesus did. He went around and performed miracles. And word gets out that he has healed this blind man. People that knew this guy as the blind guy now go, hey, there's this, he's healed. And his family that knew him as the blind, he's healed. And, you know, hashtag blind, but now I see starts trending on Twitter worldwide. Word gets out that this thing has occurred. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders in the day, hear about it. And they hear about it primarily for two reasons. First, this healing occurred on a Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. And to them, that's a big deal because that's one of the ten. It's a no, no, no working on the Sabbath. Even good stuff, don't do it, right? And the second reason they heard about it and are concerned about it is because it involved Jesus. They're like Jesus stalkers. Anything that Jesus did, they like it upset them in some way. So they did what Pharisees do, and they talked about Jesus. They gather together, and they don't, you know, Pharisees don't do anything. They just talk about what other people do. And they gather together, and they say, well, what are we going to do with this? Is this Jesus really from God? They said, because on the one hand, he doesn't follow the commandments. He, he worked on the Sabbath. And on the other hand, he performed this miracle. We can't really argue with that. And they go, well, maybe we can. Let's interview the actual blind man. So they bring the blind guy in and they go, hey, tell us exactly what happened and tell us the truth. And they say this, because we know that Jesus is a sinner. So they kind of preload the witness. And I love the guy's response in chapter nine. He says, hey, Bro, here's the deal. I don't know. It doesn't say bro, but it's implied. Uh, here's the deal. He might be a sinner or he might not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they don't like that answer. And they kind of question him back and forth. And they have this really great exchange. You can read about it. And eventually they throw him out because they're just tired of talking to him. And they throw him out and he runs into Jesus. And Jesus sees this man and he knows him and he says, hey, do you believe in the son of God? And this man said, tell me who this son, the son of man is. Like, tell me who he is so that I can believe. And Jesus says, well, you're looking at him. Probably the first time this blind guy has ever heard that sentence and it made sense. But like he goes, you're looking at him. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he began to worship him. And Jesus says, this is where I came. I came to bring judgment so that people who were blind would be able to see. And the people who think they can see would actually be shown to be blind. Which leads us into chapter 10. Because the Pharisees were here and they were hearing this. 
And the implication that Jesus is making is that they are the people who think that they can see but are actually blind. So they're offended. And so they challenge him. And so we're at the beginning of 10. And he says, he starts to tell them a parable. And he tells them this parable about a sheep pen. Now, for back then, that would have made a ton of sense. That's an agrarian culture. And I'm going to leave the Fuquay joke right there. I'm not going to touch it. We're just going to let it go. So I just, I'm growing. Holly Springs, love you. So uh, he talks about this sheep pen. And he talks about there's this sheep pen with sheep in it. And there's a gate. And he says, I am the gate. And there are these sheep that I love that I protect, that I keep from uh, having harm come to them. And he describes this picture where there are actually forces that get into the pen, not through the gate. They climb over, they come through the back, whatever it is. And he says, there are these forces, he calls them thieves and robbers that get in to the pen. And he describes the difference between him as the gate and these thieves and robbers in 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thieves come to steal and kill and destroy. So he says, these people that don't come in through me, that have no business being in this pen, they come to steal and kill and destroy. And the word destroy used there is the Greek word apolumi. Great word, right? Apolumi. And it means to cause injury with severe, severe violence. It's not like a sandcastle that gets washed away on the beach. This is violent, destructive apolumi. And many of you know exactly what Jesus is talking about because in your own life right now, you feel like there are forces at work that are causing some heavy apolumidom in your life, right? Or you can look around the world, you can look around our country in the past couple weeks, or you can look around the world almost on a daily basis and you see evidence of this destruction. And so Jesus says, that's what these thieves bring. And if that's you this weekend, if that's you who are feeling, oh, this weight of this destruction, take hope. Because in the very next breath, Jesus gives us hope for this remedy, for this condition. He says, but I have come that they might have life and have life to the full. Your translation might use the word, they might have life abundantly. And it's an exact contrast. The word used here, the Greek word, perison, is the exact contrast to this apolumi. And what it means is extraordinary, remarkable, that which cannot be attained by man. So this abundance that Jesus talks about, he says it is overflowing. It is beyond anything that you could even comprehend or imagine in your wildest dreams. It stands in exact contrast to these thieves and what they bring. And understand, Jesus is not talking about abundance in physical things, in material goods, in physical health. He's talking about the abundance that comes from being in him, from knowing Jesus. As we just sang, the riches of your love will always be enough. It's that abundance. And in the audience for this parable is this blind man who says, you know what? I know exactly what you're talking about because before my life intersected with God's, I had no idea what abundance was. And now I can see it. I can see the abundance. And that might be hard for many of us because we've never been blind. 
Let me give you a visual example that might help with this idea. Look at the side screens. I didn't really know there was such a thing as colorblindness at the time. I think I was six or seven. I thought maybe I wasn't intelligent enough to tell because I didn't know and I didn't tell my parents. So I just, I stopped painting and drawing. There's some drawings where I wish I could see how my kids put the colors together and what they were visualizing. It's not that I can't name them, there's, there's nothing there. That's gray and that's gray and that's gray. I had moments where girls would make fun of me for not knowing girly shades and I felt self-conscious about it. Sometimes I feel like there is a world of color that I'm just sort of missing out on. Color blindness is a situation where because your eyes are different than someone else's eyes, you don't see the world the same way. Commonly, red and green don't look different but look the same. So if there's a kind of a color filter, kind of glasses that would separate colors, they suddenly can see red and green. There's nothing wrong with the wiring. The problem exists in the eye with the photopigments. So Valspar is working with us at Enchroma to bring color to everyone. We developed these glasses to enable colorblind people to see color for the first time in their lives. Like this whole end of the of the spectrum that I just was completely not aware of. I'm like getting misty. This is this is amazing. I've never been able to see this one. And I just want to cry a little bit. <laughs> um I never realized like how much I was affected by the fact that I can't see the world like the way that other people see the world. When he's drawing, I see him going in and out of his crayon box like 150 times sometimes. Oh wow, that's cool. And now I kind of know why. There's a lot more colors here. All these things that are intentional in life, I never caught on to it. In the end, the experience of color is so private that you don't really know how to explain that. So is that what you guys see every day? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, just everything's flatter. Everything's, yeah, kind of, yeah. I don't want to take them off. Um... It's just dull. It's a little dull, to be honest. I never really thought about my colorblindness that much. It was just something that I had that I dealt with and that wasn't really a big deal to me. But color is an amazing experience that I think people probably take for granted. That's the visual we get with this abundance that Jesus talks about. It's the difference between living a dull, flat life and living a life in vibrant color. Where are you this weekend? 
Would you describe yourself as being colorblind to the abundant life that Jesus has for you? Because he declares in one verse, in one sentence, this is why I come. I came to give life, to separate people from death, and not just to end there, because that's a lot of times where we stop, isn't it? We stop that, okay, Jesus, you gave me life, and I'm protected, and I'm going to be in heaven with you one day. Thanks. And I keep going. And he says, no, 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 it doesn't end there. It's so much more. It's to give you life abundantly. And so he says with a loud voice, everything I do on this earth will be to that end, to give life and abundance. Every teaching, every miracle, every admonishment, every bit of suffering that I will endure will be to give life abundantly. That is my desire for you. And we sit here this weekend and we go, that doesn't make it unique, right? How many of us have that same desire for ourselves that we want so much more for our lives? That's not unique to Jesus. I'm a parent of three kids. I want for my kids more than they would ever imagine. See, the difference is that my desires and Jesus's purpose are as different in night and day. And the reason is because he has the ability to make it happen. No matter how hard I wish or dream or plan, I can't make my desires happen. Jesus can, and here's how he does it. He goes on to continue the parable. He says, not only am I the gate, but I'm the good shepherd. And so he describes the good shepherd is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I love these sheep, and I love sheep that are not even in part of this pen. He's talking about Gentiles in the future, you and I. He's talking about, I love them. They're not even here yet, and I love them, and I'm willing to lay down my life for them. Again, none of that unique to Jesus. I have people that I love. I have people not in my family that I love, and I have the ability to lay down my life for people I love. So do you. What gives Jesus the power and what gives his statement punch is what he says in verse 18. He says, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. He says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. See what Jesus demonstrates and he tells us in this parable is that he alone has the ability to lay down his life and then pick it back up. And that matters because to the sheep, it's one thing for the shepherd to lay down their life for the threat, for the thieves, for the things that would kill and destroy. But then once the shepherd's gone, what about the next threat? What about guidance? What about wisdom? Sheep are dumb. A dead shepherd leads to dead sheep. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to leave my sheep without a shepherd. So I'm going to do what only I can do, lay down my life and then pick it back up because I have the power to do so because I have the authority from my father in heaven. So as we sit here this weekend and we ask the question, when it comes to our future, is there somebody, am I the most trustworthy person in my life? I would say, no, not even close. I wanna trust a person 
who has more desire for my life than even I do. They can envision things so far beyond a life in vibrant color that I could never imagine and has the ability to deliver on it. That's the person that I want to trust with my life. Don't you? And so we might sit here and we go, yeah, I already knew that you were going to go there. I knew the answer was going to be Jesus. We're in church. Like I knew when you asked the question, that Jesus was going to be the answer. So my follow-up question is this, as we're talking about living obediently, if we know, many of us, that our most trustworthy source is Jesus, why don't we live obediently? Why don't we just follow what he says? He has the wisdom, he can see what we can't see, and he has the authority to make it happen, and yet we don't live obediently. Well, I think it comes down to several things. I think first, if we're honest, it comes down to pride. See, we don't like people telling us what to do. You know people like that. Maybe you are people like that. That When somebody tells you what to do, you don't, you don't tell me what to do. I have a five-year-old. That is her specialty, is reminding me that I don't tell her what to do. You're not my father. I am actually, in fact, your father. I promise you, Harper, I'm your father. Right, But we're, we're the same way. right? We laugh at a five-year-old doing it, but we live our lives exactly the same way. You don't know what's best for me, God. We think we know what's best. We think we have a fear that God's plans are going to lead to our future being out of control. And if you hear nothing else from me this weekend, hear this. You can trust your unknown future to a known God. You can trust the unknown future, which is everything from this breath forward to a God that can be known. He has proven himself trustworthy time and time again. But we think we know what's better. We, We know the plan. We know where we're going. And the reality is we don't even know the next step for our lives, a lot of us. I love how the Apostle Paul describes it in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, it's as if we see through a mirror dimly. That while we're here, we only see in part. We only see the moment. We only see a little bit of our lives. But one day we'll see the fullness. And we'll look back and go, oh, that's why that happened. Oh, but while we're here, all we can see is part. And yet, how many of us think that we are the ones who should be driving the ship blind, right? I don't know about you, but the regrets that I have in my life, the moments that I can look back and go, gosh, I wish I had done things differently. You know who was at the helm? Every time, every single time, it was me. It's probably worth it to let somebody else more qualified steer the ship every once in a while. You can trust your unknown future to a known God. The second thing that gets in our way is that we believe God is holding out on us. Don't we? We think God is holding out on us. He is just a cosmic killjoy. It's what got Adam and Eve. They thought God's holding out on them. And you know what? God is. God is holding out on you. But he's not holding out good things. He's holding out consequences and pain. He's holding out the emotional distress and pain and sorrow and brokenness that comes when you engage in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And I can invite some of you up here to share exactly what I mean 
And you would say, I know now what that means. He's holding out on the broken family that you will have if you divorce because you just don't love each other anymore and she's not meeting my needs and insert your excuse here. He's holding out on that when he says, don't get divorced. He's holding out on the loneliness and the brokenness you feel when your life is defined by your selfishness and your greed. He's holding out those things. And yet, we look at the Bible and we look at God and we think, you are a cosmic killjoy. All these do's and do nots. And we go and we disobey God. And every time we do, there is a cost. One of the most powerful moments for me spiritually is when I realize that the Bible is not a set of do's and do nots. It is actually the loving guidance of a father who is telling me, sometimes whispering, sometimes shouting and pleading, I wouldn't do that if I were you because there is some consequence I don't want you to experience. But we're a lot like my three-year-old. We ask why. Porter, I need you to go to bed. Why? I need you to brush your teeth. Why? If I'm God, I would have put in a book of the Bible. Why? One chapter, one verse. Because I said so. That's what it would have said. And then we would have, ref- like we would have referenced it like a hundred times. But that's not what God does. He says, just trust me. I'm a good, good father. You can trust me. I think that's why the Bible talks so much about having faith like a child. The third area that I think prevents us from really living this obedient life is that we're just too busy. We're just too busy. We have so much stuff going on. We move from work to play to soccer to swim team to insert whatever vacation to whatever it is in your life that you don't have margin to stop and ask the question, God, what is it that you would have me do in my life? You don't have margin in those areas. You don't have the ability to rest and stop. It's interesting that to honor the Sabbath and remember it and to take time to rest was put in the Ten Commandments. It was given to a group of people who had just come out of slavery for 400 years. Do you know the only thing that they couldn't do in their time in slavery was rest? See, when you're a slave, you don't get to say, hey, I'm just going to go take a nap here, boss. Yeah, not a thing. To choose to rest is what free people can do. Maybe you're here and you have an addiction. You know that there is no rest from your addiction. The people who are oppressed cannot rest from their oppressors. People who are workaholics cannot rest from their driven nature. Is that you this weekend? That you have no margin to actually rest and pause and give to God and trust that he can lead your life, that he can take care of your future better than you ever could. See, as we hear those things and they resonate in our hearts and they resonate in our souls and we identify and we go, yeah, yeah, that's it. I want us to walk away with some practical, simple steps that we can put into place to actually begin to live this obedience, obedient life, this life of color. And if you remember, we define living obediently as knowing Jesus, knowing his word, and remaining in him. You can't know Jesus without reading the Bible. You can't know his word 
without reading his words. Pretty easy there. And you can't remain in him without reading the Bible. There's a common theme, you notice. And so what we're gonna do, I'm gonna invite you, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna challenge you to begin reading the Bible, to begin understanding what does this living obediently really look like. And so I'm gonna give you a practical, easy stuff that we can do this weekend going forward to help make that a reality. First, you need to get a Bible. <laughs> Crazy, right? You need to get one. If you don't have one, we would love to get one to you. You can go by the next step counter. If we don't have them right here, we'll make sure that we get you one. Or you can do like me. You can download it on your phone. It's great because I can carry my Bible wherever I go. But you need a Bible. In order to read it, you're going to need it. That rhymes, and that's really great, but that's unintentional. Second, you need to start reading it. Carve out 15 minutes a day. Just 15 minutes I want you to carve out. Build margin in your life. Don't try to read the Old Testament in one sitting. That's not going to end well. You don't walk in the gym the first day and like pick up the 50-pound dumbbell and try to do curls. Don't, don't do the same thing with the Bible. 15 minutes. And I know some of you are like, I don't have 15 minutes. Yes, you do. I promise you, you do. I can tell you where, where it's hiding. It's hiding in Netflix. It's hiding in your Xbox. It's hiding in your emails that you have to check at night. Yeah, whatever it is. You have 15 minutes. This is what I would encourage you to do. Take your Bible, and whatever that thing is that sucks your time, put your Bible on top of it. And do not allow yourself to engage in that exercise, that activity, until you've read your Bible for 15 minutes. There's a name for this. It's called temptation bundling. It actually does a lot of weird stuff with your brain, and it, it works. But this is what I would challenge you to do. Now, if your phone is like your thing that you suck time on, don't download the app. That's just, you're leading yourself astray. <laughs> like that's, you're gonna be Pokemon Go hunting like all day long, right? Don't do that. But put that 15 minutes in your day. 15 minutes, start the process. Begin to know God, begin to understand God. Third, you're like, okay, where do I begin? Begin in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the Bible. They're the eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I want to know more about somebody, I ask the people that he or she hangs out with because they know him well. And we can look at him and you can hear from Jesus' own words about himself. So start in those four books. And as you're doing that, this is the filter I want you to have in place. For those of you that love acronyms, this is gonna be great. It's gonna be your favorite part. I want you to put on what we're gonna call the SPEC filter. And it means simply this. S, I want you to ask the question, is there sin in what I'm reading for me to avoid? Again, looking through the filter of this is a good, good father that loves me, not he's out to get me, but is there sin in what I'm reading that I need to avoid? P, is there a promise to claim, promise to give, or prayer to pray? Is there something that I should be claiming as truth in this? E, is there an example for me to follow? Is there a character, is there a person that I should go, I should be more like them, or I should do what they do? C, is there a command for me to obey? Jesus talks, love your neighbor, love your enemy, love those that persecute you, right? Like, Jesus gives commands. What are those commands that you're reading? And then K, is there knowledge for me to learn, especially about God or his discernment in some situation? And as you apply that filter, as you read through, what you'll discover is that the Bible will begin to impact your life. It'll begin to change the way you view things. You'll begin to see as if you have taken glasses and put on, and now the world looks different. You'll see things through a different filter. 
you'll experience what a married couple that I know whose marriage was tattered almost to the point of unable to be repaired through infidelity on both sides. And they began going, God, what would you have for our marriage? And they asked the question and they got in God's word and they forgave biblically. They prayed and committed themselves to one another biblically. They said, what does marriage really mean biblically? And to this day, they are experiencing an abundant marriage, the likes of which they never even dreamed possible. Or maybe it would be, your story would be like Mike's, Pastor Mike, right? Who the word of God as spoken through Bono (laughs) impacted him in such a way and through his obedience to go, okay, God, you're calling me to this. I'm gonna be obedient. And now as a church, we have had the opportunity to see thousands of people come to Christ because of Mike's obedience to God's word. What if 10,000 men women, students, and children at this church began living obediently to God and the plan and the purpose that he had for them. Can you imagine? Do you think that we would have the ability to reach the triangle? Do you think maybe we would have a couple of opportunities to really change the world? I think we would have them in abundance. Now, when Jesus finishes the parable The Pharisees break away and they start talking again. And John tells us that it says the Jews heard those words were again divided. Many of them said he is demon possessed and raving mad. This dude is nuts. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that's the choice that we have this weekend. So you can choose like half of those Pharisees did. This guy's a nut. Jesus is crazy talking about sheep and gates and this is insane. Why listen to him? And you can walk out of the doors this weekend and you can go back to living your life. You can go back to chasing things that you will never be able to find. You can go back to hunting Pokemon. Whatever you're chasing is just as real as them. And you know why you can do that? Because God loves you. And he gives you the freedom to do whatever you want in your life. He gives you that freedom with all the consequences with everything that goes along with it. He gives you, you, that's a choice. Or you can let this impact you. You can have this intersect with your life in the same way that it intersected in the life of a blind man and your life will be different forever. It can impact you on a deep, profound level. And for the first time, you will begin to see the world around you in a way that you have never experienced. But I'll tell you, as Donnie talked about last week, Jesus doesn't need followers that just walk around and and track him down like stalkers. He doesn't need any more stalkers. We don't need to gather and talk about like he's done with that. He doesn't need that. He needs people that are living out his calling on their lives. When you get to that, po- that place where you're willing to go, God, I'm willing to fall, I'm willing to live obediently. The only response that we can have to the gospel and to what Jesus presents is the same response that the blind man had. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him.
Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you so much that you give us another day of life, another opportunity to hear your word, hear your heart, Father, in this place. We are reminded through the words of your son how much you love us. Father, for those of us who don't even know you, or this is the first time we've heard Jesus' purpose, God, we are thankful that it speaks to our hearts, that it resonates to the very core of our being, that as we search and we long for more, Father, that we search for lives that are not dull, that are not boring, that we long for impact and significance and purpose. God, that you say, that's what I came for. I came to reconcile the people that I love, my sons and my daughters, back to myself so that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so, Father, for those who are for the first time deciding, gosh, I want that life. I'm tired of trying to do things my own way. I'm tired of trying to drive the ship because I am not trustworthy when it comes to my future. Father, I pray that they would place their faith in your son. They would say, Lord, I believe, and they would begin to worship. Lord, and for those of us who have already made that decision, Lord, let this be a reminder that our lives should be marked by obedience to you and your word. That the very best life that we can ever have is one that is marked by obedience to you. And you are not going to lead us astray. You are not going to cause us to miss out on the good things. Father, because you love us, because you are a good father who does not want to steal our joy, but wants to ensure it. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for the power of Jesus who demonstrated on the cross and through his resurrection that he has the power to overcome and conquer the unconquerable, to overcome the sin and the destruction in our lives once and for all, that he demonstrated that power that we might trust. We are thankful for that today. We love you, God, and we thank you for loving us first. We pray all these things in the perfect and powerful and holy name of Jesus. Amen.